Maximum Health with your host, Dr. Ken Gray. Dr. Gray obtained his master's in both acupuncture and oriental medicine from the Atlantic Institute of Oriental Medicine. Dr. Gray enjoys both being a physician as well as being an educator. His unique approach to holistic healing has taken him abroad to lecture in Germany and treat sports professionals in Hawaii and France. He is co-author of several books on food therapy. His office is in Jupiter, Florida, where he has practiced for over a decade and where he resides. Now it's time for Maximum Health with Dr. Ken Gray. Welcome back. This is Maximum Health Radio, Quality Living with yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray. We have an exciting show. We're going to get right into this with Dr. Jason Wilson, emergency room doctor at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. Tampa General is rated best hospitals, U.S. News, national ranking, regional ranking number four in Florida, high-performing hospital, U.S. News, six procedures and conditions, tremendous hospital, teaching hospital. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jason Wilson. Ken, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and your specialty is, well, multifold. Um, your credentials are very impressive. Uh, but you're, you're medical director, uh, you know, emergency room. You do all sorts of, I mean, just incredible, intense jobs <laughs> at Tampa General. But I'll let you just uh, give us some background, please, so I don't, uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with all the things that you do. I can't even imagine. I, <laughs> so let's start with your, your explanation of who you are and what, what you're Yeah, doing. of course. And, I, you know, it's funny because sometimes when you actually do it, it just sort of feels like everything kind of goes together after right. a while. So I'll try yeah. to explain what I actually do and then that'll take care of all the, you know, sleep titles and everything. But, yeah. you know, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. That, that's that's what I what I am. Um, that's kind of what I embody, I think, as an emergency medicine physician. Um, but in that role, I, I do have a couple of other uh, things, other tasks on my plate. And uh, so part of that is uh, being involved in a lot of clinical operations um, and thinking about how we design systems of care for patients to move through a hospital, both, you know, before COVID and obviously now, you know, during COVID. Um, and then I have, you, you mentioned, Kim, that we're a teaching hospital for the University of South Florida, so I have an academic appointment as well. And, um, you know, in that role, I um, am the research director and uh, have a role training residents and medical students and uh, also have an appointment over in the social sciences department in anthropology and, and work as a medical anthropologist, you know, thinking about how do um, these medical issues we see, the patients that come to the emergency department, how do they get there? Why, why are they there? What kind of social forces have led them to be there? And what kind of social forces affect our healthcare workforce? And so, you know, all of this training has, you know, really come together at the right time, I guess, for what we're going through right now, because right now we have obviously, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic in this world that requires, um, you know, both the skill of seeing and caring for patients, uh, which, which, you know, I, I do that in my emergency department, uh, shift work type of role, uh, seeing patients, treating them and diagnose them in the ER, um, but then also thinking about how, you know, how do we get lots of COVID patients into a hospital safely without affecting, infecting other patients? Um, and then thinking about how are we going to get out of this thing? And what's our world going to look like? And what kind of things are we going to need to do to move forward? And while this is going on, and do different people get sick than other people? So that's, that's where we are right now is uh, really kind of thinking about all those types of things every day. And it sort of just depends on if I have a clinical shift or, you know, a day of meetings, um, you know, or trying to stand up a new research trial to look at, you know, a new treatment strategy for COVID-19. Right. Now, you know, as you said, it's you just have to do what you do. You can't think about all of the titles and all of the 
jobs that really come under your umbrella. Um, however, it, it still sounds o- very overwhelming. I mean, there's there's not many answers. There's a lot of confusion, and that's really why I want to do this show with you because um, one thing we can say is what is actually one thing we can sort of investigate and talk about is what is actually happening on the front lines. What does it really look like? Because when you look at the news, there's so many different stories. It's it's like a soap opera. And yeah. I can tell yeah. you honestly, you know, I was talking to, well, I'm a holistic physician and I get to talk to my patients about different aspects of their life. I'm not always just treating them. I'm not always just uh, looking at their physicality. Some of it's right. psychology, you know, there's a psychological aspect and there's a stress. Stress is huge right now, as you can imagine. Um, and, you know, one patient said to me, where are the days of Walter Cronkite? <laughs> 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 and it's funny because I grew up with that Walter. Uh, yeah, and and someone yeah. who just reported the facts and gave us hope and you know information that we can sort of say, okay, I get it. Uh, now it's it's you you can wake up and each day you get a new headline. That's it. It's like um, you know one of the tabloids in in the supermarket now. Um, and, right. and and these right. are supposed to be reputable things. So I thought, you know, let me find out from someone on the front lines. And and you're saying obviously you're. You are dealing with the emergency room. You're dealing with the person that comes in and, and, and has symptoms and doesn't know what to do, doesn't know where they're going. There, there's fear. There's there's misinformation. Give us that picture. What is the first thing that happens with that patient? Yeah, so um, and things have shifted a little bit. You know, and what things look like in March looks a little different than right now. Um, we got ready back in March really expecting just this wave of patients to come in. You know, we're starting to see the stuff in Italy, starting to see the stuff in New York City. And so we divided the ER uh, back in March into two different spaces. Um, one area that was an observation unit that I ran uh, would be for COVID patients or patients who were being worked up for COVID. And so we made sure that all the rooms were what was called negative pressure, You know, meaning that you could keep all that air inside that room so viral particles don't spread around mm. the uh, unit. We trained the units how to put on that PPE that everybody's heard about, you know, all the masks and gloves and everything else. And um, then we also uh, took another area under the ramp of the ER. We have a disaster area there. We actually um, stood up a tent and uh, got ready to treat and te- or to test, you know, large volumes of maybe more well-appearing patients. And I'll tell you, that was actually a pretty, um, had some gravity to it because I trained down there in that disaster area over for over a decade now every year we do a big disaster drill but i've never utilized that area in a real scenario and so that day we went live i remember just sort of wow this is this is like the real thing so we were um we had these units ready we had these areas and spaces ready um in march and we did see patients we we had a, a reasonably uh that steady volume of patients so people would come in they would come up to the ramp of the ER and we would basically ask, you know, are you here with, you know, what, and the, the symptoms were changing all the time. Uh, what the CDC considered the, considered the symptoms to get tested because testing was so limited at first. It was right. So yeah, everything was limited. Remember? Yeah. yeah. It was Supplies, so everything. Hard. Yeah. yeah there's, and, you know, it got worse because the supply line uh, for a lot of these supplies actually came from Italy and China. And so they were getting hit, obviously. So we weren't getting new supplies. You couldn't trust your supply chains at all. So we kind of had what we had. We knew that might be all we got. Um, 
so, you know, we would pivot people to, you know, either the, well, you've got some COVID symptoms, but you look okay. Go right. down here at the Alshine Care site, which is like the tent. Uh, you've got COVID symptoms, but you look sick. You're going to go to the special space mm-hmm. in the ER, mm-hmm. or you don't have COVID symptoms, so you're going to come and you're going to just go to the normal ER flow. Right. So we started doing that in March and, uh, you know, testing people with the PCR test, that's that nasal, uh, nasopharyngeal swab test. Um, and the volumes were steady. Um, you know, the tent volumes were about 15 to 20 patients a day. Uh, we would see in our ER COVID space during March, April, May, um, probably about 10 uh, patients, you know, or so kind of getting diagnosed with COVID. Um, and probably three of those, two to three of those being admitted. So at any given time in March, April, May, the hospital probably had about 15 to 20 people in the hospital admitted with COVID. Um, and of those, probably about 10 of the 15 were, uh, maybe a little less, but probably about half, about eight of the 15 were sicker, like mm-hmm. requiring the ICU, requiring mm-hmm. you know more intensive care. Um, that was March, April, May. And we thought we were in sort of a rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. We thought we were kind of, okay, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to need to live with this virus for a while. Oh, we've got a hot spot here. This group home or this nursing home right. is having an outbreak. Right. Fine, we'll fight that fire and uh, we'll keep this under control. We even brought in some nursing home patients on purpose to try to get them out of a nursing home. Like when they were positive, we'd bring them in to get them out of a nursing home so they could, you know, not infect To stave the off, yeah, place. stave off infection. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and so that's what March, April, May look like. And, you know, I'll tell you again, June, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Everything changed in June. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can talk about that. I can sort of tell you what that change looks like if you want. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm interested, of course, and, and we all are sort of in that in that space. But um, I want to go back to the beginning because when sure. you were looking at, you know, first thing we thought or a lot of people thought was this was an elderly disease, an elderly virus. Um that has since changed to its for uh, it's it's a res- not much it's not unlike influenza where it is a respiratory considered a respiratory virus where it attacks the respiratory system right correct Sure. Yeah, okay. that is correct. I mean, okay. it's spread by respiratory droplets, right. and that so, and it's a coronavirus still. Right. Coronaviruses are, in, in that sense, respiratory uh, viruses. Right. But I think where you're going is, is appropriate too, because right. it, it does look different. Right. So, so the the there was some misinformation, or there, there was obviously a lot of information, but none of it was giving us the true answers because we thought elderly, then we thought okay, unhealthy, then there started to be this dynamic where we saw you know younger people were being hospitalized. So all of this, I'm sure you're seeing in your microcosm in Tampa general, which is an example, obviously, of what's happening all over the world, but with different population, different um, economic situations, different locations, different age groups. What did you then start to see as it started to build from March into June? Did you start to accept the fact through what you were seeing that the data that was presented was, in fact, wrong, that there was something to do with the overall health and not so much just the age of a person? Yeah, so great, great point. You even brought up, I think, uh, another important part of any epidemic is who gets sick and why. And that, that who gets sick and why part is um, sort of why do people get exposed to virus, right? So we didn't see a lot of young people with virus in March and April because we did a pretty good job of uh, following public health interventions and doing social mitigation um viral transmission mitigation strategies. Uh, There was a safer at home order in Tampa and Hillsborough County. So young people really weren't in large crowds uh, congregating together in order to get virus. So we weren't seeing as many young people getting virus. And so what we were seeing instead were 
either older people who were maybe in a nursing home environment or a hospital space or uh, they had immunocompromised, you know, they had some, you know, these over there, transplant patients or their immune right. systems were down for some reason, right. um, you know, or they were just, uh, you know, getting older and physiologically, mm-hmm. right, starting to get to the place where the immune systems were working quite as well. Right. So we were seeing a lot of those patients in March and April. The way, you know, it was actually a little confusing to us, to be honest, because we had heard that in other places, right, there's all this asymptomatic spread, all these, you know, spread out there, people who didn't know they had virus. We really weren't seeing that. We were a little confused. We saw basically people who we thought might have the virus, those are the ones who had the virus. Um, because those are the ones who are in a position to be exposed. But as we started to reopen, people who can't do things like team meetings and Zoom meetings and work from home to generate income for their families, right, they start to go back to work. Uh, young people do what young people do, and they, they congregate, and they, I think what's important about this too, we've learned, uh, especially from the social demonstration, other things that are going on, is the young people that are congregating, they like to congregate at bars and close together um, and indoor spaces, and those seem to be really important risk factors for viral spread. There's probably still some protection about being outdoor and outdoor spaces, um, but you know, the, when, when the bars start to reopen or graduation parties started to happen, we started seeing some super spreader events. And so now we start to see the shift of the uh, demographics of the epidemic from this older population to this much younger population. I mean, the median age has gone down from the 60s to uh, you know, early 30s now in this area for the people who have the virus. Right. And, you know, our ICU population is not all 60-year-olds. We have 30-year-olds in our ICU, 40-year-olds in our ICU. Um, and the way I always think about it is basically about 20% of all people who get virus are likely to get sick, um, you know, and some of those are going to require ICU care. And the more, even if we have young asymptomatic spread, the more young asymptomatic spread we have, right, the higher that number is and the higher that 20% number becomes. Mm. There's a few factors here which came to mind as you were talking. And, you know, one is, you know, I did a little research on our rankings as a nation in health because obviously our perception of health care is still, in my opinion, skewed and hopefully will change as time goes on as we accept the limitation of um, of hospitals and conventional medicine and sort of incorporate all of health as part of health care um, and think preventive, preventative. Now, we're right. a country which is almost taught that the first line of defense is the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's sort of bass backwards, excuse my French. Um, and so what you're seeing is you you know uh, you end up seeing like people before you know at a time when there's a lot of other things that there's there could be a tiered approach, but there's not. So when you get these people that come in and you get all age groups and you get all of the different health perspectives, my curiosity as a physician, as a holistic physician, is wondering: Do you see a lot of pre? Um, you know, pre-diagnosed patients where there was already respiratory issues and then they get the COVID virus or diabetics or, you know, is there a certain sort of health spectrum that we should look at in these age groups, whether they're 30, you know, because we're in a time now where there are teenagers being, uh, that have autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, things that used to, you wouldn't see until your 60s and 70s, you know. Uh, So we have a lot of interesting diseases and syndromes that are uh, happening much earlier in age. So the health uh, 
the deficiencies as a population through diet, through environment, through all those things have changed drastically. And then you look at a few months prior to all of this, where there were even deaths, uh, respiratory-based deaths on vaping, and that was big news. So did you see a lot of... Which is still going on, by the way. Which is still going on. They're still vaping, right, they're still vaping through their masks, and it's just silly. It's just nonsense. You know, there's no education on this. There's nothing in the news about it. There's, you know, there's no correlations being made, connections of health and preventative. Everybody's just looking at, okay, you know, COVID, hospital, COVID, (laughs) which makes your job and everyone like you extremely hard. Yeah, so I think you said two things are important to unpack, and one is the deficiency of the healthcare system sort of itself and how we oper- have to operationalize this entire diagnostic strategy around right. that, and the other is the deficiency of the healthcare system yep. and sort of the you know way that patients present with medical illness. So in the first one, you know, the deficiencies of our healthcare system are obvious right now. We are doing more testing at Tampa General than really any other place in this entire Tampa Bay area. We've Basically, the decision to do tests in Tampa General that was made in mid-March um, has really allowed this area to get control of what this virus looks like. But also, at the same time, when you start to see asymptomatic spread taking place in June, people don't know where else to go. And so we're seeing hundreds, can hundreds of people a day show up into that tent site I told you about earlier that you saw 15 people a day. We're seeing up to 300 people a day now show up to seek testing because... This system has not provided adequate access. So, uh, for example, yesterday morning at the baseball stadium uh, for the Major League Baseball team, they had a uh, joint corporate slash state-run testing site. The entire uh, testing capacity for the day was completed within one hour of opening that site. So people who are scared and don't know where else to go for testing turn to exactly what you said, the place they've been trained to turn to, which is the hospital system. So that's the first part. And then the second part is I think your point's really well taken um, that uh, I don't think the public recognizes how much uh, immune disease there is out there in our population. And so when people dismiss, um, a lot of younger people may dismiss uh, the fact that most COVID deaths are in people who have some other medical problems. I think young people fail to recognize how many young people have other medical problems. Absolutely. So, uh, right, obviously I have a little bias because I see all the young people in my community with other medical problems, right. but it's not a negligible amount of medical problems. Mm-hmm. Um, to all the things you just brought up, there's, there's reasons why we're seeing disease earlier. Um, you know, there's lack of prevention and there's some shift in some of the uh, other, ep- you know, other pathologies and other epidemics that we have in our country, like diabetes and other mm-hmm. immune diseases. Yeah. And so we have more disease in a younger population. And it's, it, you know, all you have to have is hypertension and it counts as another medical problem oh, or immune disease, yeah. right? Or, so infl- or, which, or, you know, not to cut you off, but one of, the, one of the biggest is our digestive issues our inflammatory sure. bowel, you know, IBS, all of those things which ruin the gut, which if you have a ruined gut, you have virtually no immune system. You have no ability your, to create. Yeah, one of your best immune fighters. Yeah, yeah. So they don't realize that. And then you're pouring caffeine, you're pouring, you know, other things, you're vaping, you're, you know, and this sort of uh, acknowledgement and correlation, you know, by these billion-dollar agencies is not being made. So then it puts the load on the hospital and um, amazing individuals like you, which could be, likely really, you know, uh, working on like, you know, because you're at a teaching hospital. So there's research that could be done. There's a lot of funding that could be done on preventative medicine. And so when these things happen, instead of always being behind the eight ball, we could be ahead of it. And we could we wouldn't be, you know, having the huge unemployment and the the other symptoms and things that you probably are seeing as well as depression, suicide. I mean, in our little town here in Jupiter, where I I, um, practice, 
there's been more suicides, there's been more depression, there's been more psychological, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on that also are contributed to loss and, and, and death and, and poverty and all sorts of aspects of our whole society. Well, you're another, society another well. really good point. You know, some people kind of focus on death as the right. only outcome of interest for COVID. Right. Death is not the only outcome of interest for COVID. The impact on this healthcare system and this population is tremendous, Yes, uh, irregardless of death. And, and rippling, so you and rippling. Yeah, you know, you hit on some of the things, right? Think about the other things the healthcare system could be doing for patients if we didn't have to take care, not that we mind taking care of it, but the fact that we are now inundated with, you know, the acute burden of illness uh, from this. Um, and I think that's important to understand is that even if we have maintained a pretty low case fatality rate, we've still gone from a place of having 15 to 20 patients a day in the hospital and to 60 to 70 patients a day in the hospital. Right. That, you know, so even though it's being driven by young person spread, there's a large amount of people are needing pretty intensive resources in acute care medicine. Right. You know, and when you look at, and this, this is basic fact, you know, when you look at the main, there's several things that can influence how, uh, can influence how long the incubation period for the flu, for instance, is. And they've likened this to being like the flu but worse. And the, the problem is, is also the incubation period is longer. So there's the infectious dose, right? This the amount of uh, the virus you've been exposed to. There's a root of infection, which refers to the way the virus enters your body, and then there's pre-existing immunity, which we touched on. If you've been exposed to certain viruses before, immune system uh, may recognize earlier, but if you have no immune system, then it's harder <laughs> to do anything. So so let's talk about that part. What, as a physician these days, do you suggest uh, the public to do to strengthen their immune system? Is there such a, um, a program or uh, or path that you t you teach your you know as a, as your students to teach uh, or to live by as well as to teach their patients going forward. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to my uh, residents who's going from his first year to his second year, and uh, we were having a Skype meeting or a Zoom meeting or whatever, whichever one we were using yesterday um, at around uh, three o'clock. And you know, he said, "I said, how you doing?" And he said, "Well." I'm coming off of uh, my six, they do six nights in a row. Uh, and he said, I'm coming off my six nights and I, I haven't slept yet. And I said, oh my goodness, why, why haven't you slept? He said, well, I started doing some things. I was gonna just stay up and do some things. And I said, that, that is a big mistake, um, John. I said, John, I said, that's a big mistake. You, you, gotta, you gotta go to sleep and um, you know, get in a sleep hygiene routine right now, especially as a you know, night shift worker. I mean, this is something that destroys your telomeres, you know, your chromosomes mm -hmm. over time. And uh, really, uh, it takes up to five years off of life in night workers and uh, you know these habits start uh, early for the residents and into their you know medicine careers to do good sleep hygiene and try to do that without pharmacology um, I think it's important and you know and uh, the more you can kind of get that pattern now now in terms of COVID you know I think we're kind of the way the other analogy I've used before we talk about the immune system because obviously this does ravage you know the immune system but this is kind of game time I think and the way I think about it is um, there's practice time there's game time right and so practice when we develop those habits those uh, habits to boost your immune system, exercise, diet, sleep, all those things. But now we're kind of seeing the game, right? You don't have time to necessarily develop the habits. It's kind of what have you done so far to lead up to this? It's going to make it either you, so you can resist, withstand, or persist through this acute medical issue that you may encounter. That's sort of how I see it right now. I don't know if there's, you know, people have asked me, well, can I take vitamin D or zinc? And I, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to hurt to take vitamin D or zinc, but, um, you know, I, I think these are probably habits we've had to have formed for a long time if we come into an encounter with virus and so, you know, whether we get infected or not. Right. You know, I like that this is starting to become 
in a, a conversation, at least on a hospital level. It's wonderful that physicians with your credibility um, accept that there is another part to prevention, to fighting a virus. And I think as there's more research on that level, scientifically, and the facts present themselves, and we can see results, hopefully it will be part of the regimen that's prescribed. Um, you know, again, this is coming from, you know, we've been on the phone, you know, speaking about so much in a very short space of time, and there's a lot more we can speak about. Um, for those that maybe tune in a little bit later, this is Dr. Jason Wilson, and he's been on the front lines at Tampa General. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for teaching the next generation of, of doctors um, coming out of Tampa General. Your, your CEO actually was the CEO of uh, Jupiter Medical for a number of years, and we did a lot of great things together on the integrative uh, and holistic medicine sector and, and cancer care and so forth and so on. And I, and I really appreciate you and all you're doing and the connection we're making here today. So um, in closing, I guess, um, is there anything, Dr. Wilson, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think the last thing I'd like to just make sure, to make sure everyone understands, Ken, is uh, the best thing we could do for prevention right now is to really think about these uh, virus mitigation strategies, which involve public health interventions. And, you know, masks and face coverings have become a controversial or symbolically ritual or whatever issue. But the thing to understand is that since this pandemic started, there have been three important papers that have shown clear evidence that coronavirus, you know, particles are decreased, uh, transmission is decreased with mask wearing. And so uh, as we shift in this pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic phase of spread, the more the public wear masks for us, the less our healthcare systems will be overwhelmed. And that's a really important message, I think, right now, along with hand washing, social distancing, and whatever other public health measures, you know, uh, are invoked in your area. Beautiful. I have one more question I'd like to ask, and I, and I don't know who I have to squeeze this in. But, um, you know, with any virus and epidemic, there's a certain aspect of allowing it to work itself out, because at some point we do have to develop immunity. Isn't that part of being human? You know, so there's a question in there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah, a statement no, and a question. It's a, a great question. No, it's a great question, Ken. So there's this, you know, conversation that's taking place and Sweden's probably the place that had this conversation the most transparently or loudly and the question is basically could we I mean we get lots of viruses viruses are things we coexist with this is a coronavirus we've seen them before can't we just kind of let this run through and run its course so there's a you know a couple of issues there um so first of all you know herd immunity this concept of herd immunity is you know it's a, it's a statistical mathematical you think you can calculate and it has to do with how much a virus reproduces and uh you know, unfortunately, to get to herd immunity for this specific virus, you probably have to get to 65 to 70 percent of the population being infected. It's a pretty high number. Now, if people didn't take up a lot of healthcare resources and it didn't impact people's life, and by the way, this virus may impact people's life downstream of virus. We're seeing long pulmonary rehab uh, periods of time, long periods of time in, in SNFs, uh, skilled nursing facilities. So, you know, this is not a negligible uh, impact, even if you don't die from this virus. So the problem is, even if we estimate, and the estimates now, right now, are that about 10 times the number of people diagnosed with virus probably have virus, but even if we allow 10 times the number of diagnoses um, out there that have actually had a virus, we're a long way off from 65 to 70% of the population having virus right now, and the burden on the healthcare system and the number and the burden on personal families would be incredible to reach there. And so then that leads us to the other alternative, of course, which is the search for the vaccine. And there are about three candidates right now that are being explored uh, for vaccines. And um, it's looking like a messenger RNA type of vaccine may be um, the, the leading candidate at the moment. Okay. 
Well, thank you for clarifying and thank you for the insight. This has been another Maximum Health Quality Living with yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray. If you've missed any portion of this, it's available on all your podcast uh, options as well as uh, the public radio exchange. Panic.